The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen. I'm Shannon Penrod and I'm sitting here with the fabulous, beautiful, and incredible Dr. Doreen Grampichet. Good morning. And we're going to be here with you for the next hour with her. She's going to be answering your questions live right now. So we are live right now on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and about a dozen other sites. And Traven's going to show those to you in just a second. But I did it again. I didn't really allow you to say anything no, except good morning. Right. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to be back. I get so excited. Uh, thrilled to have you here. If you Thank don't you. know, Dr. Doreen Grampichet is a true expert in the field of autism. I believe the preeminent ex- expert in our time and any time for autism. She's been working in this field for more than 40, yes, I said 40, not 14 years with individuals all across the spectrum, all ages, all abilities, all challenges, Mm -hmm. and their families and the people who surround them who love them. She is an empathetic voice in this community, always asking that everybody keep in mind that whenever interacting with these individuals, it has to be fair, mm-hmm. um, which is a voice that I always want to amplify out into the world because we, if we could clone you, oh, I would have already you. done it. <laughs> thank you, Shannon. <laughs> if that were a possibility. Uh, but we're saying good morning to a lot of people. Michelle is already here with us. Tiffany is here with us. Laurie and Tiffany, um, we're going to get to you right at the start here. Uh, May says hello, Dark Angel. Hi, how are you? Poppy. Good morning. So thrilled to have you in Parker. It is always a thrill to have you. Parker is noting that it is the one-year anniversary of Ed Asner passing. And uh, I felt that very much yesterday when I saw that online. It doesn't seem possible that it could already have been a year, but his presence is still very felt throughout our community. Absolutely. Thank goodness for that. Absolutely. And I think the the center that he and mm. his uh, son and daughter-in-law started, of course, is going to live on and yeah. do a lot of good. He always used to say, this is my legacy. Yeah. He would say it in a really curmudgeon way. He'd go, this, this is my legacy, Aww. right? Um, and we, we just went last week to the, have you been to the Academy um, Museum that's downtown Los Angeles that's <laughs> No. All about the motion picture uh, oh, and academy. No, I go. Yes, oh, it's I've super it's fun. We so enjoyed it. There is, I'm telling everybody, if you go, when you buy your tickets, the tickets are pretty affordable, but then there's a whole thing um, that they offer you. It's called the Academy Experience. They don't really tell you anything, but it's an extra $15 per person. And my husband was like, well, that's ridiculous. We're not doing that. And everybody I talked to who'd been, I was like, did you know? We didn't know what it was. It's the best thing ever. You must go. And if I had known, I would have gone in a ball gown. They put you in this room that is surrounded with cameras, and they hand you a real Oscar, and you get to stand there and accept your real Oscar, and they videotape it and send it to you. I'm going again in a ball gown. It was so much fun. (laughs) So I'm encouraging. But anyway, the reason why I bring it up is because they have a whole corner of one of the exhibits that's just about Carl, 
mm -hmm. um, the character that he played in of Up, course. and the whole creating of the character built around him, and they show how they make all the little things. Amazing. It's just so sweet. There, yeah. But there were so many things at the exhibit that I just super, super loved. So anyway, thank you, Parker, for reminding us to remember Ed this morning, who we dearly, dearly loved. Uh, and we said a very happy birthday to Dr. Temple Grandin yesterday, oh, too. Oh, I didn't so realize it was her birthday. It was her birthday yesterday. And I was excited because I thought that the Artemis was going to blast off on her birthday, which <laughs> if you know Temple, that would have been the best birthday present for her. But they had to postpone. So anyway. Um, all right. I, we, I am excited that everybody's here. We talked a little bit about the different places that we're live. Don't forget that this show is a podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. And it'll be available later on today. Um, and it's available wherever you get your podcast for free. I should note that. That's super important. I also want to give the disclaimer that even though Dr. Grampichet is unarguably the expert in this field, there is no expert who could give individual specific advice in this format right? It doesn't lend itself to that. It wouldn't be fair to the individuals. So we do ask that when you write in, give as much information as possible, including where you are generally in the world. We don't need your street address, but maybe the, you know, how close you are to the closest city and what that might be because resources are different around the world. Um, and it might help uh, her to tell you about something that's practically in your backyard or to tell you about a challenge that you might be facing in your area of the world. So we ask that you do that. We're, we're not going to reveal anybody's names or anything. But, you know, obviously, if you're doing it on a public format, that's, you know, mm -hmm. it's up to you what you say, right? Um, but that, that, will, that will help us, but no individual specific advice. And, oh, Calgary, love that. Uh, you know, I get a kick whenever people tell us where they're watching from. That's true. I, I'm geographically challenged, so this helps me I have to get a <laughs> sense of where everybody is. All right. Uh, we Actually, I never knew that Dark Angel is in Calgary. I, well, I, I know that you had shared with us before Canada, but Canada is a ginormous place, as you know. Yes. And I don't know if you know this, but Dr. Grampichet's husband is Canadian. So mm -hmm. there you go. That's right. Uh, <laughs> um, and he's, uh, like most Canadians, he's wonderful. Oh, thank you. What a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful husband you have. In any case, um, so write in, write as often as you want. We're going to answer as many questions as possible. We're now starting to just have a starting theme. Mm -hmm. So we're going to tell you guys what the starting theme is each week, but you can write in questions about whatever you'd like, but we're just going to start in a general direction. And uh, I believe it was Tiffany who said, would love some help with eating good stuff instead of bagels and junk stuff. Very mm -hmm. common tale that our kids get fixated on a type of food or, you know, one or two things. That's right. And that's what they want to eat. Very, fact, very typical. If you go further and read what Lori just wrote, I think we can answer both at the same time. Okay. Do you want to read that or you want me to? Sure. Lori says, my son only eats pizza, chicken nuggets, cheeseburgers, Cheez-Its, fruit, peanut butter, and jelly and cheese. This is really it. We try and give him different foods. We even hide it in foods. He just won't eat it. He has sensory issues and is starting a feeding therapist. The problem I have is that I'm about ready to give up cooking. I waste so much food and my leftovers go in the trash. It's hard to make meals for just two people when only I eat. How can I get him to explore more foods? He also helps cook the meals in the kitchen and he loves this a lot. But when he has to eat it, he doesn't. Mm. And it's it's great that you wrote in, Lori, because 
I think it's important for us to realize that our kids become selective for different reasons. And as we go to teaching them to become unselective, uh, we have to keep those reasons in mind. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, it sounds like your child has some issues with the actual texture of the food, perhaps. I'm not sure because pizza, chicken nuggets have a very different texture than, let's say, peanut butter or jelly, right? Mm -hmm. So it could potentially be texture. Uh, there are, I've had a lot of kids where parents will come in and say he only likes crunchy foods, like yeah. chips, for instance, or crackers. And other times parents will say, oh, no, he'll only, he won't chew. He will only eat things that are mushy. Yeah. Okay. So texture definitely is part of it. On the other hand, I find it very, very common that our kids will crave those particular foods that it's not really an allergy, allergic reaction, but it is similar to an allergic reaction. Um, they crave the foods that they actually should not be eating. And that is because when we eat foods that we can't... So normally we eat foods... We digest them, right? The process of digestion, we break the food down into peptides, which are chains of amino acids, and then we break it further down into the amino acid, and the amino acid is what travels through the bloodstream and gives nutrition to all parts of our body and our brain. Unfortunately, there are certain foods that our kids just don't break down all the way to the, to the amino acid level. They break it down partially to the peptide level, and then these peptides start to travel, and this is where the leaky gut theory and all of the research and science behind that comes in. Those peptides will actually cause the reaction that we is kind of like an endorphin reaction. So it's sort of... When you see our kids eating those particular foods, they get a little high from it. Similar to, like, let's say when, when we drink alcohol mm -hmm. in some ways, mm -hmm. right? So what happens is obviously they crave it. They will go after that feeling more, and they will continue to eat those specific foods. So that's another common kind of thing that happens that makes our kids very, very picky. Now, another thing that happens, I think is that sometimes our kids will eat something that makes them feel sick, right? Yeah. Like bloated because they really can't digest it. And in those cases, the kid, our kids will start to uh, not only avoid that particular type of food, but everything that in some way they associate as being in the same category. I mean, as adults, we classify our foods like we'll say, Oh, you know, these are legumes and those are dairy and stuff like that. But kids don't know those classes, so they will classify them in their mind different ways. Like, oh, anything that is white or anything, you know, last time I had a stomach ache, it was because I ate things that were brown, so I'm not going to eat those things anymore. So all of those types of factors come into play when our kids become very selective, Right. And when you're reversing it, it is a process, it's a very delicate process where you have to actually keep all of that in mind. For instance, if I am doing feeding therapy, which I'll briefly talk about in a minute, mm -hmm. but if I'm doing feeding therapy and it's with a child who is very texture resistant, 
I'm going to focus first on getting the child to actually eat things that are within the classification of textures they like. And then I will, at the end, once they've started to broaden, then I will start to introduce new textures. Yeah. And it's a very, it's a process, right, Shannon? As you know, you can't just... You know, a lot of parents think that the, the key is to hide the food in other food. But in reality, it's actually what you're trying to do is you're trying to teach the child to really take in that food. And the only way you're going to do this, because remember, um, food in itself is a primary reinforcer. It's a very, very potent thing, right? Food aversion is one of the most... Uh, effective, long-term types of aversion. So it takes a little while to reverse that. And w the way that you do it is you start with a very, very small morsel of the food that the child will not take in, and you then reward with the food that the child wants, okay? And you can also reward with other good things. For instance, every time the child takes a very small portion of the food you're trying to target, you turn on the TV and everybody does a dance and yes, you give the child their favorite drink or yeah. other foods that they like. And then tomorrow you'll do two morsels and every day you will increase by a very, very small amount, meanwhile still maintaining a lot of other reinforcers. Now remember, as the amount of the targeted food gets larger, it becomes impossible to reward with other food, right? Because now you're doubling up on food. Right. And your child's going to be full. So that's why it's really important to have other social and secondary types of rewards, right? Yeah. Like the TV, as I said, or music or, you know, token system mm -hmm. or toys or uh, just, you know, attention from the parent, whatever is meaningful to the child. Right. And it, it's, it's like any other shaping process. It does take a while but you start with a very, very small request, something that is manageable and is worth it for yeah. the child because they're getting all these other rewards. And you gradually increase the demand of the, the targeted food. Yeah. I'm wondering if everybody has seen the documentary Super Size Me. <laughs> right? Because I always think about that because I, I think there's a lot of things that we suspected about food mm -hmm. that came into sharp focus for me watching that documentary. For those of you who haven't seen it, a, a very healthy guy who works out decides to do a documentary and he says, I'm going to, you know, eat from McDonald's from, every day, uh, from the menu every day. And in the beginning, he says, I'm going to have a salad every day. Mm -hmm from McDonald's, but I'm everything else. And, and you see he eats all this wonderful, healthy food, and then he decides he's going to eat McDonald's. And the, and the first day that he's eating the McDonald's, you know, I mean, come on, it tastes good. Oh, Let's, my God, like, it tastes right? And he goes, oh, okay, I haven't had a McDonald's hamburger in a while. He's thrilled, wonderful, wonderful. And then the second day he's like, oh, I don't, I don't feel so good. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do this. But then around the fifth day, he's like, oh, yeah, and that's all he wants. And by day 27, yeah. this guy who was healthy is now with the doctor, and they're saying, you know, you might have done, you, you know, everything. you might have done permanent damage to your body just eating McDonald's. But by that point, the thing that's most interesting to me is this guy who 27 days before was eating all this healthy stuff and loving it. He doesn't want to eat anything else yeah. anymore because yeah. it becomes this 
thing where even though his body isn't liking it, it's what he now is craving. Right. And he wants that stuff. And I think that's what was most fascinating to me because we don't notice it in our own lives that if something makes us real sick, we go, oh, I don't know if I can have that. But if it just makes us low grade, not okay, it seems like unthinkable that we would crave that. And yet we do. Yeah, not just our kids, we do. We we do. do. Yeah, we do for sure. And Jan, we all are in this boat right now. Oh, Remember, yes. like we're not any different from our kids. The only difference is that we have better detoxification cycles, right? We're yeah. redoxing from this stuff that we eat all the time. But if you think we hope. about it, we hope, we hope, we hope yeah. to some extent. And, yeah. and many of us are not, which is why there's so much chronic illness and yeah. so on. But if you think about it, really... We also are, you know, we're taking in all kinds of sugars, preservatives, Mm -hmm. and these are the things that obviously our body, you know, you have sugar and it'll burn out fast and you'll crave sugar again. And it it takes a while for your body to learn how to break down things that are not, Mm -hmm. you know, immediate things like sugar, for instance. And it takes a while, right? So so you have to train your body. It takes, I would say it takes about a month before your body actually learns that it should break down complex carbs instead of having the simple carbs all the time. So these diets are very important. I, I noticed what Parker wrote. Yeah. It, he is right. It is difficult to do this because initially sometimes our kids will refuse. Yeah. And let me tell you, no child will sell, will starve, but it is possible that they refuse the things that are good for them, like electrolytes, right? And they can become dehydrated. It is really good that if you can use a feeding therapist, often speech therapists will do feeding. Uh, some BCBAs know how to do feeding. So really it's important for you to get some expertise. My number one, if I was to give you, uh, you know, advice on experts to work with, mm-hmm. my number one advice would be to first start with a really good nutritionist. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, you know, we've worked a lot with Dr. Julie Matthews, who's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of really good nutritionists, but you need the nutritionist to establish Uh, the diet that you're shooting for, and then you need either a speech path or a behavior analyst, someone who has experience in feeding to be able to work with the nutritionist and help your child gradually get to where they are. It's beautiful, though. I want to tell you guys, you know, I mean, if any of you have been on a diet where you've lost weight and you've become much more active because now you're eating really healthy foods... You feel good, right? Yeah. You feel a lot better. You sleep better, et cetera. And so our kids really do feel better once they start broadening and, and taking in better foods. Yes, uh, all of which is super important. I kind of want to pivot over to <laughs> some questions that we had that were sent in. Uh, my three-year-old is non-speaking, diagnosed autism. We've started ABA, but he has constant diarrhea, oh. which interrupts therapy. I hear you talking about diet, but when I asked my BCBA about starting the gluten-free diet, he told me there's no science behind it. Now I'm confused. <sighs> Should we try the diet? Am I with a bad ABA provider? Mm, oh my gosh, what a great question. So, um, and, and what a difficult uh, last part of that question to answer. Yeah. 
you know, your ABA provider could be really good at ABA. I don't know because I've not observed. I really don't know. It's possible that they're a good ABA provider. But the problem that I have with a lot of ABA providers is that they don't educate themselves on other things and then they tell parents incorrect advice, okay? There is a lot of science behind both gluten, casein, corn, soy. A lot of our kids have different allergies. And let me tell you, my friends, if there wasn't science behind it, do you really think that you could go out to most restaurants nowadays and get gluten-free foods? No. Obviously, this has grown over the last decade or so because there is science behind it. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's very well supported. And it's not just gluten, casein, corn, soy, and food dyes and other things. It's important, actually, to identify what it is for your child. I mean, these days, we're so lucky, Shannon. I remember like 15 years ago with the uh, movement. I don't know if you remember. They were called Andy. Do you remember the group that yeah. would do that? They were. Yeah. But it's very easy now. You Honestly, you can get a food sensitivity kit sent to you at home, and you can check your child's food sensitivity. You can also go and get an organic acids metabolites test. There's lots of different ways to determine what foods your child is allergic to or is not able to break down. The reason that most people do gluten and casein is that studies had shown that the vast majority of people, not just individuals with autism, are allergic to those two products, casein, which is the protein in dairy, and gluten, which is the protein in whole grains. So, you know, it's important to be able to identify. This is why I always do my lectures on treat mm. the whole child, treat yeah. the whole child. Because, you know, it's ABA is just intensive tutoring, intensive teaching. And if you start to do a lot of intensive work with a child who's not fe otherwise feeling well, it's just not right, right? I mean, yeah. like some days... I am not feeling well, and if those days I was supposed to learn a bunch of new stuff, I'd be pretty frustrated. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I do want to say that one of the things that I think is significant about what this parent wrote in and said is that, you know, we've started ABA, but our child is having constant diarrhea. Yeah. And this is, like, I, I'm so glad that, that the parent wrote in because... You should never ignore these these signs that something is wrong. Yeah. I mean, I've told you that I will never forget that I was doing an intake for a family, and I asked them questions for about two hours, and at the end of the intake, I said, is there anything else? And they said, well, yeah, he has diarrhea. And I yeah. said, like, oh, how often? Every day. Yeah. And that is a very clear sign that there is something going on in the gastrointestinal system. It could be a variety of things. Yeah. And you need to deal with that because obviously it's uncomfortable and unhealthy for anyone to have yeah. diarrhea every day. And I will say that I am aware of a lot of families that have gone on the gluten-free, casein-free diet as an example. As you said, it's more important that you figure out what's right for your individual yes. child. I will say that a lot of people jump to the gluten-free, casein-free one first because it's a little bit easier than some of the other diets and because so many people have said that their child made improvement. But there are families that do the gluten-free, casein-free, and they don't see a bang for their buck, so to speak, yeah. for that. So it's, it isn't a one-size-fits-all. But I know that for us, 
it made great sense because I have an allergy to, to wheat. Mm-hmm. And so when they explained the gluten thing, I was like, oh, well then perhaps this is the way to go. And I was allergic to milk as a child. I'm allergic to milk again. I don't like mm-hmm. that. It's a terrible thing. But so it made sense. And for our child, he began to speak when we eliminated these things. He yeah. began to speak again. He had been speaking, stopped, and began to speak again. But here's the important thing. I think all the time about what would have happened if we had just started ABA without having done something because exactly. he was a kid who had diarrhea. I don't think he would have gotten as much out of ABA because he would have been dealing with how he felt. He wouldn't have had the focus. Oh, yeah. He couldn't have learned Brain the things fog. he did. Absolutely. But on the other side, I meet families who are all about the biomedical, all about the diet, and they're like, I'm not doing ABA. And, I, and I'm like, I always say that for us, getting him healthy is what made it possible for him to benefit from the ABA. For sure. But the skills that he learned was from ABA. Yeah. He did not learn skills from a diet. Right. He did not grow his education and his language from a diet. Yep. It made it possible for him to learn. That's right. And, you know, I it, it really is about, I mean, you have to really look at ABA as just being the modality to teach the things that the child has not learned, right? And depending on the age of the child, when you're able to finally stabilize medically, um, you're usually behind. And you need that ABA to try to catch your child up. And, you know, by the way, I do want to say that if you decide to try a diet, I highly recommend that you eliminate one item at a time. A lot of times parents will just jump in and and get rid of casein, gluten, corn, soy, everything, because that's what they've heard. And you'll never know which one it is, right? And so it's important and it makes it so much harder if you eliminate everything at the same time. I recommend you start with casein. You usually see the effect of that within a week or so. And then you can start gluten and you will see another effect with gluten probably two weeks after that. And then you can start to eliminate things. But hey, as I said, if you get a food sensitivity test, you'll be able to know right off the bat. And sometimes you'll be surprised at the things that your child is actually sensitive to. It is amazing. Uh, We have to take a pause um, because we have a very important message for you guys. Uh, We've been talking about this here on the show. Uh, I want you to take a a look at this because I I want to encourage, if you qualify, I really want to encourage you to call the number that you're going to see in this next message. Take a look at this. A recent study funded by the National Institute of Health suggests that there may be a higher risk of autism in children whose mother took the pain reliever acetaminophen during pregnancy. Acetaminophen is the active ingredient in scores of over-the-counter products, including Tylenol, Excedrin, and Robitussin. So if your child was diagnosed with autism and you took any acetaminophen product while pregnant, this commonly recommended over-the-counter medication may be responsible, though additional research is ongoing. If you or a loved one used Tylenol or other medications containing acetaminophen while pregnant and later gave birth to a child diagnosed with autism, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Shapiro Legal Group is now evaluating potential legal claims by parents of autistic children. Call right now to see if you may be entitled to financial compensation. There are time deadlines to file a claim, so don't wait. 
you can reach Shapiro Legal Group at 888-657-0455. Again, that number is 888-657-0455. You can also contact Shapiro Legal Group by going to shapirolegalgroup.com forward slash autism. Shapiro Legal Group PLLC associates with attorneys throughout the country to help people nationwide and is licensed in New York and Washington, D.C. and has its principal office at 60 East 42nd Street, New York, New York. This ad was read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Welcome back and thank you for watching that important message. I, I hope that not only are you looking at that for yourself, but I'm going to ask all of you to share that with people that you know and that you care about. So often we don't get the information that we need, right? We get it from our community. And That's so right. I'm asking everybody to share that important information. You know, that, that uh, the, what they're looking at, the whole concepts of Tylenol and whether or not it, it somehow contributed to the development of autism is a very yeah. important thing because, as you know, Shannon, when our kids get vaccinated, the doctor tells you to give the child Tylenol. Yeah. And Tylenol, unfortunately, is one of those things that just reduces the um, uh, the um, redox of yeah. of toxins. So it's it's very important to to call. Yeah, very important to call, and I and and very important to share the information because the thing that keeps me up at night is that now they're recommending that pregnant women, as they're researching this in an abundance of caution, they're telling pregnant women that they really have to very heavily weigh any painkiller while at medication while they're pregnant because of this new study. Yeah. Um, so yeah. super important that we share that with our friends, whether they are pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant. It's information that everybody's going to want to have. Mm-hmm. Okay. I do want to get to this next question. Hi, Dr. Doreen and Shannon. Love your show. So glad to see that. So glad to have found y'all. Uh, I'm guessing you're from the South because you took the time to say y'all. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to ask Dr. Doreen if she if she would consider my son's ABA treatment so far successful. He started at two years, 10 months, and he's almost six months in. He has mastered about 75 programs, starting with a few single words, and now speaks in two to three word phrases. Um, no problem behaviors to report, partially potty trained. I look forward to hearing from all you, uh, from you all, sorry, again. Uh, thank you so much. So six months in, uh, and so now he's three years old. Wh- what are your thoughts? I mean, that sounds just beautiful. Yeah. That sounds very, very exciting. Did they say how many hours of ABA? They did seen? not say, well, but wouldn't we love to know that? I'd love to know how many hours a week your child is receiving ABA, but certainly if they've mastered about 70 or so different skills or operants, mm-hmm. then uh, I would say you're doing great. And your child has just turned three, so that's wonderful. Congratulations, and please keep going. Amazing. Uh, our dear friend Johanny has written in and said, my nine-year-old son will be starting fourth grade next week. We're still struggling making friends and asking to play properly. For example, we're at the shore last week, and two boys were playing in the ocean. He wanted to play. I told him to go ask. He said, hi, this is uh, my mom, Johanny, her phone number is, and told him. He said, the kids look so confused. I stepped in and said he wants to play with you. It didn't go well. I worry this is happening at school, too. Can we get the school to support him during recess or lunch? I wish I was a fly on the wall to see yeah. what is happening so I can yeah. figure it out how, and figure out how to help. Suggestions? 
Uh, and thanks in advance for all that you both do. I'm sending you hugs. I, that's so sweet that that's what he went up and said to them. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, it's so often I see our kids trying to interact with the tools mm -hmm. that they have, right? They don't know. So this is what's really, it's a great question, Yohani. Thank you for asking this. But, and it's so important for all of us to realize that playing is a very complicated skill. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy thing, right? It's not like we're just imitating some motor movements or something. You actually, there's a lot involved in playing, even if it's a very young child. And, and, and your child is starting fourth grade, so that means he's probably somewhere around 10 or 11 years old. Mm -hmm. By that age, play has become extremely sophisticated. So let's talk about that for a minute. It, so just playing with other kids involves, first of all, knowing, because these are all the things that, Johanny, you'd want to teach him ahead of time, or if you have ABA or perhaps someone in the, if you ask the school, uh, maybe they are providing the ABA, I'm not sure, but these are the types of kind of prep skills that we teach our kids so that when they go to school, they are successful in these types of situations, right? So first of all, your child needs to know the different types of games, right? That's the simplest one, like chase or, you know, I don't know, sports that they play or whatever games that they're playing on the playgrounds. Your mm -hmm. child needs to master those. Secondly, your child needs to know things like taking turns. Mm -hmm. um, it's my turn versus your turn. And believe me, there's lots of different situations that, will all, that make it different uh, in taking turns. So that's the second thing. Third thing is they need to know uh, conversation to some extent. So they need to know how to approach others, um, which would have been a skill that would have been very useful to your child in this scenario. They need to know the types of questions that you ask in order to engage with one person as opposed to engaging with a group of kids. Uh, they need to know how to repair the situation because sometimes things fail like this mm -hmm. and how you can change the subject and now ask in a different way. Um, they need to know how to uh, change the subject so that the subject is something that they're good at interacting about. There's lots of different things. They need to know how to, you know, which group to approach. Like, is it better to approach, uh, the, you know, children that are about my age playing an activity that I'm good at or another group, so on. So all of these types of things should be things that your team kind of works on before your child is put in this situation and when they're in this situation, then hopefully there's an adult there, like you were, who can mediate and say, you know, can you guys play whatever hide and seek? He, he really would love to play with you guys. That's a fun game. So it's it, our kids will not be able to go in and do this on their own. They need all the skills that are involved. You know, I started learning about this very early on. It was my dissertation. My dissertation, when I was getting my doctorate back in the 80s, was, <laughs> was about this subject. It was really? About, yeah, it was about how teaching preschool games can wow. increase social behavior. And it was really interesting. How because, did I not know this ever? Oh, you didn't know that? No, okay. I didn't know that. That's <laughs> yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So, and I, you know, so I would teach these different children uh, preschool games mm -hmm. like Duck, Duck, Goose and, you know, Ring Around right. the Rosie and all this sort of stuff. 
And then we would go to the schools and observe and see whether or not, first of all, it generalized, and secondly, whether or not it would increase their ability to interact. Yeah. And it was really interesting because the children, uh, they reacted differently. If the child had social conversation, yeah. then this skill would really help them significantly. If they right. didn't have social conversation, it didn't matter if I taught them 10 games, right. it wouldn't be effective because knowing the game didn't help them. They still stood out. They still didn't know how to right. ask. They still didn't know how to ask if they could play or initiate the game or that right. sort of thing. So it's important to have both aspects, the content as well as the social interaction skills. And uh, Johanna, you know that we've written a ton of these types of kind of social interaction, social conversation lessons in skills and, uh, and also at the back of our, our book, the card book. So you can always look there and find lessons. Okay, I have two things I want to add to Please. this. And, and first of all, uh, you know, as she said, skillsforautism.com. I want to say that we talked a little bit last week about, I did a parent-to-parent talk about getting an aid and about going back to school, both of those things. And in both of them, we talked about the playground. And you might want to go back and look, but, but I'm going to give you just the, the, the smallest thing that IDEA has language in it that says that the school has to be giving your child uh, an opportunity to a floor of opportunity to access the curriculum to help them with their getting a job and lifelong skills, even if they're a kindergartner. Right. Which means that what they're doing on the playground is covered under IDEA. The way that you get an aid on the playground during the playground is that you in you put a goal into the IEP that can only be met on the playground. Right. So you write you you go into your IEP meeting and say, here are three goals that I've written that I would like to see him there be on know. the playground because we're seeing that this is an issue for him and it will affect him lifelong. And then they will start a process of looking at that. And, they, and it will force them to have to put someone who has eyes on it who can facilitate. So yep. that's the shortcut to that. What we did when we did that, because I went in with skills. I, skills will actually, if you see the lesson and you're like, I would like this lesson to be put in, there's a button that you can push that turns it into an IEP goal. Yep. And then and it spits it out and you take it to the IEP meeting. And I did that. And they were like, oh, is that a problem? Yes, and they said, oh, well, then we should, before we can do anything, we have to have him evaluated by a recreational therapist. And I said, what is that? Is that a thing? Like, you know, and it led to the most beautiful stuff, you guys. The recreational therapist came in, evaluated him. They saw that he needed recreational therapy. So the person would come and not only work with him, but would meet with the teacher and do a lesson for the whole class. Mm-hmm. The teacher loved it. The students loved it. The kids all play because it's not just our kids. You have to teach the other little miscreants how to react to our kids, yes. right? And they don't know how to. They haven't been taught manners. I'm sorry. I'm keeping it real here. <laughs> but the, I love kids, yeah. right? And I used to be a teacher. But they have not been taught things. And, and so the recreational therapist taught all the kids, and they all played better on the playground. Of course. Win! So all of that was important. But I remember when you talk about all those lessons about joining a conversation and ju- group, so and like nice. I got to tell you, it's not sexy. I, and as parents, we go, <laughs> you know, like I can't, I can't even. And when they're teaching it, it seems like, eh, what are we doing here? But then the first day of junior high, when my son went to junior high, mm-hmm. and after months of fighting with them because 
the school did not want to send him to, re even though he had been included in mainstream the entire time in grade school, they did not want him to do that for junior high. They wanted no. to put him into a special day class. Yep. And I came to you and I said, I don't know what to do. And you said you would kick me with one of your pointed <laughs> shoes yes. if I let them put him in a special day class. Yeah. And I said their biggest argument was he's not going to be able to handle the social game right. and he's going to be made fun of. Right. And you said to me, he's earned the right to figure it out. Yep. And and so I was like, I don't know if he's ready. And you said, I will kick you with my pointed shoe. <laughs> and um, because we were friends, she doesn't do, threaten every, everybody <laughs> with that, right? So um, I, my husband and I, nobody else does this, but we did this. We took him to junior high and walked onto the campus with him the first day. And there was a circle of people that were standing together, kids that were standing together. And I was like, you know, you need to be over here. And my son like dismissed me walked up, kind of angled himself in to get into the group, listened to what they were saying, eventually pitched his voice up to add something, reacted to something that somebody was staying there, saying there, and then eventually said, hey guys, it was great seeing you, I gotta go, and left and went to another group and did the same thing in another Ugh. group. And it was textbook all of those little lessons, joining the conversation, uh, you know, repairing a conversation yeah. when somebody missed something, right. all of these things that I didn't think were sexy that he put all together on that day, I cried. I was walking out the gate and I was calling back to the office and saying, keep doing what you do because yeah. it works. Yeah. It was the master class in why do you need to learn all of those things. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that. Uh, what no, what so she true. said is brilliant. And it can be taught, but you have to, you know, you fight for a it's goal. A on the, it's a lot. It is. Yeah. It I mean, is. It's just important. It's one of those things where people ask Shannon, like, you know, but he didn't get it. It's like, we never want to blame the child, right? If you no. don't give the child the tools, all these different things, then it, it, I always give the example, you know, if I was in China and I was expected to do some sort yeah. of you know, cultural routine or something that I had absolutely no idea how to do, I also would not be successful. Yeah. So it's important to learn all the subsections of well, this task. And she's using skills. You're so good. And they're working on all of these right. things, but they're a little bit hung up on can't repair the conversation. Yeah. Um, and that they, they worked on this, but he's struggling with new kids, not generalizing here. Any advice for that? Well, I mean, generalization is, is a really, really big part of this. And I don't know that it's with new kids or with different topics or if it's just when he's not prompted. But, you know, you just have to practice that and yeah. model it. And with uh, it's this is yeah, a couple of days ago, I was answering some questions on Instagram, I think, and somebody mm -hmm. was asking me and saying that their team of ABA therapists changes constantly, yeah, and whether or not this is good. And honestly, it is a good thing for generalization, but it's not necessarily a good thing for acquisition. Yeah. So, when your child is in a new phase of learning, you want to make sure they have the same team of people. But when it's at the point where you want them to be able to do the task they've already mastered with lots of different people, then that's when you want to have different kids, different therapists, and so on. And believe me, our kids do eventually learn it. You just have to focus on it and practice it more. Okay, Dark Angel has written something in that hopefully you know what she means because it's over my head, uh, which a lot of things are. Uh, <laughs> 
She says, my four-year-old's gut has been cleared now. So much better with behaviors. However, clostridia left his brain completely unbalanced. Dopamine is not being converted to norepinephrine. Is this reversible? And and they go on to say that HVA slash VMA ratio is high for according to the OAT. Yeah. So you are basically discussing with us the results of your organic acid metabolites test and yeah, I don't think that uh, you know your how your neurotransmitters are, are converting and how your body is using them are affected. So I don't, are affected by lots of different things all the time. So this is not something that's permanent, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, there are lots of medications that can affect norepinephrine on its own or dopamine on its own, even. So this is I would really recommend that it, you know our child. Your child's, uh, you're analyzing a blood test, and I would really recommend that you talk to uh, a, a, a MedMaps doc because I think it's a functional medicine doctor will be able to help you with diet, believe it or not, that will really help with how your child's body uses their neurotransmitters. And I assume that your child's not taking any SSRIs or SNRIs or other anti-anxiety, antidepressant medications. But if you talk to a MedMaps, and some of the MedMaps doctors are actually psychiatrists, Mm -hmm. and you might want to talk to one who is a psychiatrist, and they will be able to really help you get through this. This is too nuanced for me to want to give you feedback. Okay. But I want to remind everybody, it's medmaps.org for for those doctors. And earlier we mentioned Julie Matthews, want to tell everybody that her website is nourishinghope.com. Yeah. So um, if you're looking for them. And often, by the way, I mean, it doesn't even have to really be a MedMap doctor. I myself use a doctor of functional medicine for myself, and she is not affiliated with autism per se. She doesn't have clients who are autistic. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you do functional holistic medicine, they basically will take you through dietary and homeopathic and naturopathic types of medications as well as use of you know western medicine as well but their goal is not to just uh deal with the symptoms it's more to deal with the causation and to fix things so that the symptoms never occur there we go i'm saying hello to michael in philadelphia and christina has written in to us and said hello dr doreen my son who is almost seven slaps and sometimes kicks my husband and i he only demonstrates this behavior at home i am thinking the function of his behavior is negative attention seeking thank you for your help uh yeah 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 christina it could be negative attention seeking uh, it really depends. Possibly, he, it depends on what he's getting out of it every time he does that. Uh, is is he just getting your attention, uh, or perhaps he is doing that when a demand was placed and he's delaying the demand? I, it depends, right? Yeah. And this is when uh, you would benefit from. I kind of suggest two things. If you have access to a BCBA, this would be a great time to get them in to come and do an observation and do an actual functional behavior assessment and give you a really good behavior intervention plan. 
Um, that's what behavior analysts do, so that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have access, uh, we had on, I think it's on skills, if you go on the skills website, skills for autism, you'll see that there's a section called CIFA, which is the Card Indirect Functional Assessment, and you answer a bunch of questions, and then it will suggest possible, like the likelihood of the function, as you said, being attention or being tangible or, or demand avoidance or escape or whatever it is. So that might as well help you a little bit as well. But having contact with the BCBA will help you know next steps. Once you've identified the function, it's important to then know how to manage it. Absolutely. Uh, I want to say, though, that um, when you go onto skills, because I know we, we mentioned this the other day, there, there's skills, which is this whole big tool, right? And there's a monthly cost for that. Within that, I think, I'm not 100% positive that they're still offering, but you should ask them for, tell them that you just want the BIP builder. If you get the BIP, BIP builder, then you have access to what you were just talking about, the CIFA and um, being able to look at what the function of things are, um, you don't get the lesson portion of it. So just uh, know the difference because I know people were like, oh, it's, you know, I don't need this whole thing. Some people do. A lot of people do. I love having mm-hmm. the whole thing. That whole thing that I was talking about that if you push the button, then you get the, uh, not only the lesson, but you get the IEP benchmark. Oh, my gosh. I, I have a friend who uh, that you also know who spent a great deal of money getting ready for an IEP, hired an educational consultant, paid over $1,000, yeah. and they prepared lessons for her child. First, they had to evaluate her child, prepared lessons for her child, and then put together all this stuff for her to go to the IEP. And, you know, I want to say it was like $1,300. And then the next time I was like, how about we do this instead? Yeah. How about how about if I just push some buttons on skills for you and print the same thing out and it'll take 10 minutes and it'll be directly tied to your child who's already been assessed because she'd already answered the questions and skills and did the same thing for five seconds on skills. And, and, and I was yeah. like, yeah, I love yeah, skills. It does help. Uh, skills is an amazing thing. Uh, okay. So, oh, we had one more question about food. My child will only eat Burger King fries and only if they are a certain level of hot. Oh, interesting. Uh, don't even think about giving him McDonald's friends fries or, or getting fries from Burger King and reheating them. Our entire lives run around being able to get him hot oh fries from Burger King. I don't know how it started, but how do I get us off this track? I'm afraid to not have him eat. Yeah. Don't be afraid. I mean, that's part of what happens is that we become afraid of things um, and things that we predict, which are not necessarily going to actually happen. Um, But I think that you should, you know, early part of the show, we talked about how to reintroduce foods. And the same thing occurs here, which is essentially you will give him... Uh, you know, a lukewarm fry and then a hot fry as a reward type thing. Yeah. But it's it's unique. I'll give you that. There's very few kids that react to temperature or are very specific about temperature, and that's what's causing him to be selective. And again, if you can find someone who's a specialist in feeding, it's so it's such a 
you make progress in such small increments that it's very hard for parents because honestly, you're just like, and especially if it's something that has to do with heat or the temperature of a food, it becomes pretty difficult to maintain the right temperature, right? But I would really suggest, and I, I don't know if this child eats other foods, I would just suggest that you not fear that he's just going to stop eating uh, because often there are a lot of other things that we can offer our kids and they might be resistant for one day, but the next day they will start eating other things. Yeah. Uh, Parker had mentioned earlier, um, he, he said, I eat a lot of foods, but I don't eat certain foods due to texture, smell, and looks. I don't eat salmon due to pink color. I, and you know what? Especially if you're not getting wild salmon, that's good. Mm-hmm. Like you shouldn't be eating the stuff that has sure. coloration stuff. I don't eat tuna fish, cabbage, or broccoli, for example, due to smell. I don't eat peas, corn, and a whole bunch of other things due to texture. Take it slow with medical help. Uh, maybe a nutritionist or therapist of some sort. I just want to say that you know I think we all have some level like there's like oh for sure I love vegetables and and yet for I don't sure. like wax beans. It's, it's I don't amazing. like how they squeak when you eat them. Now that's just like that's like <laughs> random and crazy, right? But I, I literally the reason why I don't like wax beans is because they squeak when Absolutely, you eat them. Yeah. Now, if I was on an island and I was stranded, could I eat wax beans? I certainly, certainly could. Yeah. Um, but I think you know one of the, one of the things I think we 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 kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater sometimes because we get so worried. We get scared, yeah. And it's not just regarding food. Food is a really mm. important one because, you know, sometimes I'll have parents who will visit me and their child is actually a little overweight yeah. and they're still afraid that their child might starve, right? Yes. And we are, as human beings, we are built in a way that we will eat when we are hungry, when yeah. we're really hungry. So... We don't naturally let ourselves starve if there's a choice. But, you know, I'm not saying you should let your child get to that point. I am saying don't be scared because the child will realize after a while that I don't have my perfect choice. So perhaps I I am willing to try this other thing at a smaller level if I get my perfect choice as a reward, you know. And these are important things. It does take a little time, but it's like everything else, guys. I just want to kind of reiterate, it's not just about food. It's about everything else. Mm -hmm. We panic when our kids object. Mm -hmm. Their way of objecting can sometimes be a huge tantrum that puts us into panic mode. And believe me, I've been there myself. So what I'm saying is that you know, let it pass. They, it's it's okay. Don't think that the child is going to, you know, it's, it's some horrible thing is going to happen. As parents, we're kind of trained to think that way, you yeah. know. But, uh, you know, just give it a chance. Allow your child to learn the right things and reward the right behavior. Absolutely. And you can go slow. We have a minute and a half. Dipti has written in from Germany and says, what about constipation? Because we've talked a lot about diarrhea, but we haven't talked about the other end of it. And constipation and is half. more common, actually. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, uh, nice to have you join us from Germany. But uh, I do want to say that constipation is often because we have inflammation, right? And mm-hmm. when you have inflammation, that is an automatic... Uh, I have, you know, sign that something needs to be treated. 
Now, it could be a reaction to something that you're not breaking down properly. It could be bacterial overgrowth uh, in the intestines. It could be candida, yeast. So, uh, lots of different things can cause inflammation. But when you have inflammation, you know, there's air bubbles in the intestines and it becomes very difficult to, um, to have a good bowel movement. So a lot of times... Uh, Functional medicine doctors will try, will do blood tests to figure out what it is. And sometimes they will give you antibiotics. If it's a bacterial overgrowth, they'll give you antifungal medications if it's a fungus. Um, and at the same time, they might put your child on something like uh, a high fiber diet or something that involves a stool softener or even a laxative so that your child can void while their gut is becoming healthy. It is really important because when sometimes our kids have constipation for days and days, when constipation really starts after day three and of not voiding. And, yeah. But it can cause a lot of not just pain and discomfort, but also increased toxicity. Yeah. So it is very important that you talk to a functional medicine doctor who can help your child while they're going through this. I have found that Sometimes there's a need for immediate relief, something like, you know, uh, a laxative or a stool softener or something like that. But at the same time, that problem continues unless you actually treat it functionally, holistically, and make sure the child is having a healthy diet with high fiber so that they actually can heal. Is it crazy to also say, I've become aware of the fact that a lot of people in this new generation do not give their children water. Oh, That absolutely. they only give juice or milk right. or soda right. or something else, that water is not a part of their diet. Which is crazy. I mean, water is, is the best uh, uh, tool or treatment for so many different things, yeah. not just constipation, also you know, upper respiratory infections and yeah. so on. So please make sure your child is drinking a lot of water. Yes. I don't, I don't know where I was recently that there was a discussion about that. And people are like, really? My child doesn't drink any water. Yeah, and several other parents were going, yeah, no, we don't do water. Yeah. And I went, ah, uh, that, yeah, would, and that course, would create a problem. You know, we give juice and sodas and these things. And, they think, that that's the, and yeah. they think that that's the same as fluid. It isn't the same yeah. hydration thing and can lead to constipation. Okay, we're out of time. I apologize. We're going to leave very quickly. Don't forget, come back tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'm doing the parent-parent talk about parent stress. Oh, wow. about things to do for parent stress from a parent's point of view. And then on Thursday, uh, Nancy is here with me for Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. Very fun show planned for you. We will be back tomorrow. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you all of you. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.